0: Welcome to this edition of the Morrisville Baptist Podcast. Uh, it's great to have you listening in and we hope that this message comes as a great encouragement and blessing to you. Uh, if you'd like to know any more information about Morensville Baptist Church, please check out our website at www.morensvillebaptist.com. We want to thank you for your word, and Lord, we thank you that your word endures forever. And Lord, as we uh, look into it now, Father, we want to pray for a spiritual wisdom revelation of you, that we may know you better. Father, I ask that your spirit would guide my words, in what not to say and what to say. Father, anything that's not of you, I pray, would fall to the ground. But Lord, that your words, Father, would stick and go into the hearts, into the minds, Father, as we gather this morning that you may be glorified, that your body may be built up, and that people, Lord, who do not know you, that may be here this morning, may have an encounter with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I said, it's it's great to be here. And uh, if you're a visitor, you probably won't be familiar that we've been going through the Gospel of Matthew for the um, last, since February last year. And uh, we've been looking at the kingdom of God, which Jesus came to preach, and he said, if you want to be my follower, then this is how you want to live, this is my mission, this is how the kingdom is going to grow, and this is what the community of the church is going to look like, and so Jesus does that, and then just before his crucifixion, he then starts talking about the future of the kingdom, because he's going away, and he wants his disciples to know what that looks like, and you might think, oh, we did this a couple of weeks ago, didn't we, Well, you see here that we're, we're looking over this week and a couple more sessions, we're looking at two chapters. And um, just to put this in in context, if you go in the New Testament, 23 of the 27 New Testament books refer to the second return of Jesus to earth. On average, one every 30 verses relates to the return of Jesus in the New Testament. That's quite significant, isn't it? After salvation being the dominant issue... In the New Testament, the second most dominant issue is the return of Jesus. And in fact, throughout the Bible, uh, there's a, a factor of eight to one where the Bible prophesies the second return of Jesus compared with his first coming 2,000 years ago. So, do you think this is an important subject? I think God is trying to communicate that it is. And so, we want to be able to just understand what Jesus was telling his disciples, one of his last messages before he, um, he goes to the cross. So we're going to pick up that this morning with, with, with the kingdom, the future of the kingdom. And that implies there's a king. And so um, uh, we need to see Jesus in that light as our king. It's easy to see him as shepherd, but we remember him as our king as well. And so but just before we do that, that's because we had to rejuggle Um, our our preaching roster a little while ago Um, I just want to go back to Matthew chapter 23 very briefly we're not going to read it but just to highlight some things is that in this last week of Jesus before his crucifixion he has a, a, a speech or a talk to the crowd there in Jerusalem he then has a direct fiery confrontation with the leaders and then he speaks to his disciples about the future and there's a connection between those and so before we go to look at the, the key, key this morning about the disciples, we're just going to look here about that confrontation he has with the Jewish leaders because it is important and it will be a connection later. If you can see that screen up there, um, Jesus uses some really harsh words here. The word woe, he uses seven times to the Jewish leaders. And woe is an expression of denunciation, condemnation, Even a curse, quite opposite from what we love in the Beatitudes, where Jesus says, blessed, blessed are you. And so he uses them seven times, and he condemns the Jewish leaders there because they were blocking the way of salvation for others. Jesus got really angry about that. They were producing bad fruit, and Jesus had a lot to say about what success looks like. Good fruit. He says the fruit of these Jewish leaders is rotten and he condemns them for that. And he says you're loving the gifts of God more than the giver. That's causing blindness. He says you're amplifying financial giving over the bigger, more weightier commands of justice, mercy, and faithfulness. He rebukes them for, our, for focusing on outward purity, outward appearance, and not what was on the inside. And they are claiming self-goodness unlike their ancestors who'd killed some of the prophets. So Jesus really lays into them. A bit uncomfortable here is that it's not kind of the picture we're used to of Jesus, is it? Very fiery. But in here, we're getting just a flavor of Jesus as king and as judge. And he's warning them to get their house in order because there will be... Um, uh, consequences if they don't, and so we need to grasp this picture of Jesus. And it can make us feel uncomfortable, doesn't it? Jesus saying, Cursed, cursed be you." But it's in the Bible. It's in the Gospels. We can't ignore it. Can't cut it out. It's there. And so we need this picture of who Jesus is if we we're going to have the right portrait of our Lord, of our Savior, of our King. And so we need to be aware of that, but also. Sadly, some of these passages like this, I don't know if you've read this one or you skipped over it, but some of these passages have been used like this in church history to persecute the Jews, that Jesus said they were wicked. And so we've seen many persecutions against them over time in the name of the church, and that's been really tragic. Not just this episode, but others too. shows, shows that the church at times can get some things badly wrong. And so we need to be careful. We can think we're really right. These these Jewish leaders thought they were really right on these issues. But we can be wrong about things. And so we need to be careful how we interpret some things. And so that's just a reflection there. And just the next slide. Oh, that's me, isn't it? Sorry. I showed this a few weeks ago. And it just felt right to put up again is that when we lose vision of who God is, we make him into our own image, we lose our vision. And then we start ignoring parts of the Bible, and that leads to idolatry, because we're trying to make Jesus in our own image, our hearts can get hardened, and then we can get blinded. And Jesus is saying to these Jewish leaders, you are blinded, and it's up to you to do something about it. And so that's pretty scary. Could this happen to us? It could do. And that's why we need to protect ourselves. And that's why in this passage, Jesus is already saying lots about not being deceived. And so that's a a reminder, and we may just pick that up in a a short while. So coming back now on to Matthew 24, or just before Matthew 24, as a recap when Tom and I spoke the other week, is after that fiery confrontation, Jesus tells the Jewish leaders, your house, the temple is another name for it is going to be left to you desolate and you're not going to see me again until you say blessed is he who comes in the name of the lord there'll become a day when you welcome me back because you're rejecting me right now and so he warned them of that and then matthew 24 is all about this conversation that jesus has uh, with the disciples after that all and so when he says this great statement they've got three questions for him When will the temple be destroyed? What will be the sign of your coming? Because he says he's going away. And what will be the sign of the end of the age? If you're Messiah, our hope is in the new age. And so Jesus answered their questions. And we quickly talked about um, from verse 15 to verse 31 that Jesus spoke about the temple. An Antichrist figure sets up the abomination of desolation in that temple. There ushers in a period of great distress great tribulation we we call it so i should have done should have done that and that there will be there will, there will be um uh, great birth pains around the world and that they will they will grow in intensity but the good news is that jesus will intervene so that we can survive those times then jesus talks about deception false messiahs false prophets And that the love, agape love, the love of Christians is going to grow cold. That many are going to turn from the faith. That kind of sounds depressing, doesn't it? But in the midst of that, Jesus says this gospel of the kingdom is going to be preached in the whole world. And that's the good news. And so he says, stand firm to the end, because God will have the final say. And he said, immediately after those days of distress, that Jesus is going to return. And you won't have any doubt when he shows up. He will be in the sky. And we will see that. And so all these deceptive false prophets and messiahs will be exposed clearly for what they are. And then he talks about the angels being gathered. the uh, Gathering the elect from the ends of the earth, from the ends of heaven. So there's a great gathering. But others will mourn that's a sobering thought because we have family who are not part of God's people. To live to see such a day will be mourning. And so Jesus gives that straightforward prophecy. There's nothing difficult in that. And he, says, he even says, let the reader understand. Just go to Daniel if you want a bit more information. And he, he says, let the reader understand. So Jesus is clear that people can understand what he said in that passage very straightforward sequence of events and then jesus then shifts to using some figurative language here and we'll just read this passage now so straight after the gathering of the elect it says this now learn this lesson from the fig tree as soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out you know that summer is near even so when you see all these things you know that it is near Right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation, the word also means race as well, will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. And one thing I'm confident of is that the Jewish people will be there at the end of the age because that is one of God's promises. And The other thing is that God's word will not pass away. And so, in the midst of things, we can have confidence in those two things. But what are we to make of this passage here, where Jesus starts using this figurative language? This has been interpreted in, in, in a couple of ways. And so, I just want to just talk through just quickly what those couple of ways look like. Some people have treated this as an, an analogy now, sorry, just uh, I know it's been a little bit back at school, but it's just helpful to try and interpret this passage. An analogy is a similarity between two things that are otherwise dissimilar, and the comparison is on, ba- on such a similarity. So, for example, a sword, I've got my pen, and a pen are both figuratively great weapons, but different. That's a kind of analogy. The second thing is an allegory. The allegory is an image or story that demonstrates a hidden meaning through imagery and symbolism. You all familiar with Narnia? Yeah? Well, who's Aslan a symbol of? Christ or Jesus. That's right. And that's kind of an allegory. And so, how do we interpret this this passage? Is it an allegory? Is it an analogy? Well, if it's an analogy, Jesus implying that the fig tree blossoming is. Compares when that's blossoming. Compares of all the signs he's just talked about happening in the same season. So when summer's here, the fig tree is full of fruit. When Jesus is near, all those signs will appear together. If it's an allegory, I mean, Israel is clearly an example of a fig tree in the Old Testament. And some people have consider this as being an additional sign that when is Israel exists as a nation, it's a sign of Jesus' return. When Israel blooms as a nation, that becomes an additional becomes an additional sign to that. It's a bit hard, isn't it? Well, how do we figure that out? Well, one way to do that oh, I press the button, yeah, is um, one way to do that is just to consider the context of this passage. Now, Jesus started at the beginning. Of, of chapter 24, he says, "Do you see all these things?" And he's talking about the temple. And then he goes into a discussion about all those signs. His going away, destruction of Herod's temple, the birth, pains, trouble in the world, trouble in the church, the abomination of desolation, the great trouble. Because he repeats it now after he's given this prophecy, which ended in verse 31. "When you see all these things?" so he's connecting what's in the middle or what he said at the beginning these things what are these things the signs and so if it's an analogy which it seems to be may have the best best fitting of this is that when you see all the figs blooming you know that summer is near in fact the Gospel of Luke adds not just the fig tree but when all the trees are blooming when you see that happening all these signs together you know that you're in the season of the end times that Jesus is near at the door don't know the hour of the day but you know you're in that season and so that connects best Jesus using that phrase at the beginning of this passage and here now for Israel for for these these signs to happen Israel must exist and that's absolutely clear from Scripture But it doesn't necessarily mean just because Israel exists, that once it exists, that Jesus must return. Israel has been a nation since 1948. And so Jesus never mentioned that as being a sign in that previous passage of those signs. But it must exist. But it doesn't give give an indication of when he returns. But if If this is the right understanding of the fig tree, it means that those who are living to see that fig tree bloom will be that generation. Witness all these things, and so Jesus is trying to use this example to say that you will know when those times are happening—not the signs in isolation, but together. And so that's what Jesus is doing. He's trying to equip his people. You know the signs. You know when I'm coming. And so that seems, I said, the best way to to address that passage. and um you think well does this really matter you know why bother about this well jesus has said in this passage now learn this lesson from the fig tree as soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out you know that summer is near so jesus says i want you to learn this lesson he only uses this phrase once else in the new testament and it's a shame those Jewish leaders didn't understand it, because when Jesus says, go and learn what this means in chapter 9, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, I've come to call, come to call the, not the righteous, but sinners. They didn't learn that lesson, and it had profound consequences for them. So Jesus is saying, learn this lesson of the fig tree. Now, the word disciple means student. And if we're all disciples, we've got to learn So part of this morning is using our minds to learn what God is saying. And so Jesus is saying, learn and apply this teaching. Doing nothing, be ignorant, is not an option, according to Jesus. Don't ignore, but pay attention. Now, Daryl mentioned a, a few weeks back about, you know, this won't, impact what our view of this won't impact our salvation but if we get heated on these kind of things um it can we can lose focus and so he says in the end things will pan out and there's a light-hearted thing about that too that we get our focus back on jesus when things get get difficult and, and so but there's a serious side that jesus says in here that you can know and he says if you truly love me you will obey my commands so if we truly love jesus here we need to understand his commands and obey them. And so he's saying here, learn this sign. So that's part of our challenge. And then Jesus goes on to add, and he expands this, is the, the second passage we'll just look at. Jesus uses a, another figurative example where he compares the days of Noah with the days of his return, of his coming. And this is what Jesus says. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them away. This is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken, the other left. Two women will, women will be grinding with a handbill, one will be taken, and the other left. Is that all clear? We'll understand? So what do we make of this? Well, one of the first things is we get a bit uncomfortable when we talk about the days of Noah. That sounds like Old Testament stuff, doesn't it? But Jesus uses some of these characters from the Old Testament to bring relevance to his own mission. And so it's a bit uncomfortable talking about the days of Noah in this world where we talk about a loving Jesus. Don't really kind of talk about a, 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 a king Jesus often in the church. And Paul had to warn the church in Corinth about preaching a Jesus other than the one he preached. It's very easy to do that. It's less confrontational, isn't it? (laughs) If we can preach a friendly Jesus. And so this is part of Scripture, and so we need to learn it. This is what the New Testament says of Noah, that in him building that ark, he condemned the world and became the heir of righteousness, righteousness in keeping with his faith. Noah's faith was to endure for many decades in building that ark. But he wore, bore witness to the world. As a church, life might be difficult out there, but we're bearing witness to the king. Peter, who was there when Jesus was giving this message here in Matthew 24, he says God protected Noah in the midst of that great judgment. Sorry, I should put that on There. So God protected Noah, worst judgment this world has ever known, and Peter says God protected Noah. And so that's part of our challenge in trying to figure out some of these things, but being aware of that, that God, just as Jesus mentions that God cuts the day, Jesus cuts the days short to protect the elect, that happened in the days of Noah too. And so, what do we do with all of these things? Well, as I've been praying about this and, and, and what to share, a picture of picture of, 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 of a battlefield. Now we are in a battle. We read scripture. There's a famous 20th century preacher and author, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He said this. The first thing we have to realize is that the Christian life is a warfare, that we are strangers in an alien land that we are in the enemy's territory. The teaching which gives the impression that the pathway to glory is all easy and simple and smooth is not Christianity. And there are many verses in, in, in the New Testament to endorse that. But he didn't pick it out of thin air. So what does that mean? How do we deal with these things? There's two areas I just wanted to highlight. One is, and I said, Jesus' underlying message is when you just strip back all these prophecies, Jesus says, are you ready? Are you prepared? And no matter what you think about all this, is that what, that's what he's asking you to do, is to be prepared. So if we're prepared and learning the lesson, we can't be ignorant. If the season that we're in changes... And we're not aware of it jesus is saying that's on you that's your responsibility i've given you revealed truth also that loving god is not enough in these kinds of season when they happen significant things and we feel a lot like we're in a significant time right now Because sincere love for god must transition into mature love we've got to grow up in our love as children grow up into adults And so just consider, if Noah had loved God but ignored his commands, what would have happened to Noah? He would have drowned, wouldn't he? Noah had to do something. If Israel had loved God during the Exodus but didn't paint the door frames with blood, what would have happened? The firstborn would have died. They had to do something. They had to respond, obey God's commands. He told them what to do. At the time of Jesus' crucifixion, he weeps for the people. And if Christians had just loved Jesus, but ignored his prophetic words there, that Jerusalem would be destroyed. When you see that happening, get out of the city. If people had ignored that, what would have happened? They would have been caught up in the destruction so loving God is not just enough to love God is to obey his commands that's what a disciple is and so again doing nothing is not an option and I think Greg will probably pick up on this next week because Jesus will elaborate this in the parables and again doing nothing is not an option there's a faith acts and so What's interesting here is that um, God may have told Noah up to 120 years before what was going to happen in Genesis, in Genesis 6. And then in Genesis 7, God tells Noah, in seven days judgment is coming, and you're going to know that. So Noah knew what was going to happen for decades, didn't he, building the ark. He didn't know when until seven days before. Now, if Noah had waited until seven days before, God said that, would he have been able to build the ark? He wouldn't have been able to be prepared, would he? So God gave him these warnings, told him to get prepared. And when the time came, if he weren't ready, it was too late. And that's part of the message of Noah. And Jesus says, just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. People will again be taken away. And when you know, it will be too late. So when we're in this season as Christians, we ought to know that Jesus is near at the door. So we need to be prepared. We need to discern what times that we are in. And part of taking Jesus' warning seriously, not just discernment, but we need good leadership in our churches. You need to pray for your leaders. Pray for me and your elders and, and, and Tom and Kelly. Because, again, there's a battleground and so as you read through scripture, judgment and salvation are part of the gospel message. They go hand in hand. Whenever we read stories about God judging, there's usually after that a story about God's restoration. They go hand in hand. And so as we talk about this future temple being destroyed, Jesus comes back at that time. That's what he's saying in Matthew 24. And so we need prophetic leadership. That will bring peace and stability and clarity to God's purposes, should we live to see these days. The Apostle Peter says the prophetic word is like a light in dark places. If you don't put the light on, you're going to be in the dark, aren't you? So he says, put the light on. What good are we going to be to the people in the world who are seeing turmoil and trouble if we haven't got a light turned on? Can we help them? Who are the people of hope? Isn't it us? Hasn't God called us to do that? And so it's just great to hear about Kelly and um, from Kelly and, and Ray before, just talking about missional things, reaching out to people. They need to know this message. And so the tragedy here is in this part of this great deception. In those days, what were people doing? Eating, drinking, getting married? Nothing wrong with those things, is there? And they were swept away. Jesus says exactly the same thing is going to happen before his return. That these things will happen. Interesting, when I read uh, this passage in Noah's day, Noah's day is grammatically linked to being taken away in the flood of judgment. That's a negative thing, not a positive. To those who have been taken away, have been taken away in judgment. That's grammatically what that passage says. But we have confidence that God warns his people. As Amos says, he doesn't leave us in the dark. And so, this issue here is not about a lack of information. Jesus has given the most insightful passage on his return here in Matthew 24. He didn't want to leave his disciples in the dark. The issue is not about that as we grapple with end times. The issue is a lack of responsiveness. People don't take the warning seriously. God won't judge. He's too kind. But that's not the Jesus of Scripture. we have got to remember that faithful Christians aren't under God's wrath. So don't think that. But if we live in fear, ignorance, and anxiety, we're going to become disillusioned, aren't we? Life gets too hard. You're hearing that in the news now. People are saying, "What's going on in this world? Life is just getting so awful." We get offended, confused. If we are in that, that state, how can we help anyone else? How? Jesus's answer is to stand firm and to be prepared. So we need to take him seriously and what he's saying here about the future if you were here a few weeks ago I had this chart up on there Um, I'd suggest if you want to understand it better go back to our previous talk but these are just four different mainstream views of of the the age we're in now and how the new age will happen and so these are four well-respected views the key things in here that every orthodox believer in Christian believes in is that we're in the church age now, that Jesus is returning, and that there will be a new heaven and earth. The challenge is knowing the details in between, because they are a little bit less clear. And so we can hold on to those big things, and that's really important that we do that. We hold on to the big things, no matter what your view is of how Jesus returns. Is there going to be this this tribulation, not tribulation? Would there be an Antichrist or not? Will there be a rapture or not? People all debate some of these details, and some of them are wise Christians. And so, if I had a view, if I, if I had a preference, my preference would be that modern, the modern premillennial view, where the church is raptured before any trouble happens. I'd like that I'm sure most of you would like that too Um, I think that's going to happen because there is a rapture I understand there's a read scripture there's a rapture some people don't believe there will be but um, that's why that would be my preference if we were wrong about the rapture my second position would be uh, that that post-millennial view that there'll be no great tribulation that the church will flourish around the world and as it's successful we'll welcome Jesus back That would be okay, too, because it avoids any trouble for us to face. So I would prefer those two things. Wouldn't you? So what do we do with this? Well, I said that's my preference. But as Jesus told us to be prepared, I'm really struck with several common statements he made early in Matthew 24. One, he said that many are going to turn away from the faith. What does that mean? They must have been turned to the face, faith, faith to turn away. You may say they're nominal Christians. we may be able to explain that away. But many are going to turn away. That's awful, isn't it? What a tragedy. Jesus then says, many of Christians love, sorry, uh, the, the love of Christians is going to grow cold. Agape is a, the word for Christian love. That's pretty sad, isn't it? That Jesus is saying these things are going to happen. And I would find that really depressing if Jesus hadn't carried on to say, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world. And that gives me confidence. But it also disturbs me that while the church may be successful, and take the gospel to the end of the world, there's going to be an electrifying of the fence. People are going to turn away. And that has got to be the greatest tragedy. And that sobers me when i think about how do we figure out some of these views. And so, as, as you know, when I, I prepare a message, this message and other messages, I'm confident this gospel will go to the end of the earth. And that's our anchor, isn't it? God's in control. But what really troubles me and disturbs me is the likes of what what Paul says. When he took the gospel around the Mediterranean, he talked to the church at Ephesus and said, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. It could be easy for me to leave verses out here. Could it be easy for me just to say, hey, this is my view on how this is going to work? I'm your pastor, just accept it. You know, or tough. But what if I'm wrong? That's one of the scariest questions I have. What if I am wrong? I can feel confident in my view. Hey, yeah, this makes sense. But have you ever asked the question? What if I was wrong? How would that impact not your faith, maybe, perhaps, but the faith of others? What would it cause to the love of others if you're so determined this is the way God is going to do it and you're wrong? That's the most scariest question I do as I prepare messages. Part of that reason is God says, I'm going to judge you teachers more strictly. And that's sobering. To me pretty sobering. So when you think, "Hey, I've got it figured out, this is the way it's going to happen," ask yourself that question: What if I'm wrong? There are plenty of scholars all in the different ends of this view. all justify it. So where do I come to on this? Well, the most prepared position of all is the only one that says Christians will experience the Great tribulation. We want to be prepared? We should assume for that. This is the way it seems that Matthew 24 flows. From the Antichrist, the temple destruction, the great troubles, immediately after those days, Jesus returns and the gathering of the elect. That's the most simplest sequence in Matthew 24. And we want to be prepared, that's the way I take it. I could be wrong. And if I'm wrong, well... I'd hope for one of these other ones. And I, but I want to be prepared to be wrong. And so I ask you, and you may be confident in where you, you, you're going, one of my prayers is, Lord, if I'm misunderstanding something, I ask him to correct me. And Julie prays that too. I'm your pastor here. I love you. And I don't want to lead any of you astray. We know the big things are but I don't want to lead you astray on some of these things, because I said it's the second most dominant issue in the New Testament. What is happening with this? So we don't let it obsess us, but it informs us and in how we do things. And so I just want to just perhaps finish this with the, the summary slide here from a few weeks ago. I've just added a couple of things in red here that we're called to maintain our love for one another because that's the greatest command of all. But we ought to love one another and do things with a sober judgment, that we be careful that we don't, we don't lead other people astray, even if we were sincere in that. So let's be sober in the way we try and work through these things together. That's important. And I said, the, the overcoming the faith, the, the overcoming the test of faith is Endurance. That is in Matthew, and it's right through the New Testament. The big test of faith is to endure for that return. And we are a people of hope. And said this picture Jesus gives of the childbirth, don't focus on the labor pains. Focus on the kingdom, the birth, the new kingdom to come. That's where the joy is. And we keep our eyes fixed on that. We will be there, that we will keep our joy. I want to finish with one slide here. I think we all recognize this lady. I had no idea where she was in her faith a number of years ago, and then I read a book about her, and she described herself as a servant queen. Who is the king? Our queen, who has just departed. Who does she serve? Jesus. She, a queen, knew Jesus is king of kings, lord of lords. And she said, not only did she dedicate her life to service, what's left out on there is that she said she dedicated her life to serving Jesus Christ. And I think we're seeing some of the fruit of that right now. But um, I'm inspired by that. And she looked to Jesus. And we need to look to him as our king. A great king, a benevolent king. We're all mourning about the loss of our queen right now. And rightly so. But there is going to be a day when we have a king returning who is going to be far more perfect than the the queen, even though she was great. But this king will never die. Isn't that wonderful? And he will reign over us. And that's part of our hope in the future. And we want to remember that now. We're just going to take communion.